Hey, it's Guy B from Vital MX. Welcome to the 10th episode of The Inside Line presented by Thor. This week's guest is Dan Betley. He's a motocross lifer who's worked through the ranks, going from test rider and mechanic to winning multiple championships as a race mechanic with Jeff Stanton. He later made the jump to team manager at Team Honda HRC, and he's currently the team manager for Geico Honda. We sat down with him at the Geico Honda shops in Corona, California. Before we dive in, we've got to thank a couple of brands that help support the show. As we mentioned before, the Inside Line is presented by Thor. Since 1968, Thor MX has been supporting some of the world's most elite racers, including the 2018 250 Pro Motocross Champion, Aaron Plessinger. Head to ThorMX.com to see the racewear that Aaron and the rest of the Star Racing Yamaha team trust day in and day out. Also, we have to thank Chaparral Motorsports, who has been helping riders outfit their dirt bikes with parts, accessories, and tires for more than 30 years. Today, Shapmoto offers professional advice online and in-store, helping you to find the best riding gear and equipment for all your power sports vehicles. Visit shapmoto.com today. That's chapmoto.com. All right, we've got the sponsor stuff out of the way. Let's dive in. Hey, first off, how did you get started in motocross? Um, originally, my father uh, or my family owned a bicycle shop, so I always kind of had the inkling of wanting a dirt bike when I was a kid, and I was, you know, I think I was like 13 and XR75 days. That was my first dirt bike, and uh, so I always had that, but my, you know, my mom never wanted me riding, and so from the bicycle shop days, um, I would keep my dirt bike, you know, I, you know, I had uh, gravitated to 125s, and I would keep the 125 in the shop, and um, after hours, after working in the bicycle shop, I'd work on my dirt bike, and then race on the weekends as much as I could, and um, my dad taught me all my mechanical skills, and so I owe a lot to him, you know, showing me um, a lot of things other than just working on, you know, mechanical side of things. But that's kind of how I got started as far as having that interest. But then from there, there was a, a person that came into our shop that we sponsored to ride road bikes. His name was Jim DeGain, and he worked at Team Green. And so I said if there was ever an opening at Team Green, and this was back in the days that Dave Jordan was running the operation, um, and there was an opening, and I was offered a position to start there. And I worked with uh, Jerry Campbell, I think, at the time, and myself, and um, Greg Quidor, and Jeff Chambers. We were all the technicians at the time. And um, that's how I got started in the industry, basically. And that was like 1981. To me, it seemed like very much a Honda lifer. Yeah. A lot of people don't know I worked at Cowie, but I've really only worked for two, well, now three, because I consider FCR their own entity. But um, yeah, I've only worked for Cowie and American Honda. And I've been at American Honda. Well, that's not true, too. <laughs> I keep forgetting all the other, you know, I was at Honda Troy, too, but we can get there. You know, that was for a short period of time. How far did you get in, in racing? I was never, yeah. I mean, California, there was a lot of talent. Back in that day, I mean, it was a good period that to be from where all the local, all the pros or the national stars of the time used to go to Saddleback, used to go to Carlsbad, and you could see those guys on a weekly basis. And then there was the CMC series and the CRC races, and it was really really cool like the golden state series was so cool that you could go travel and have maybe five six race series each weekend travel up and down the coast and then you're there with the national stars racing and you could watch them race and then you could race but yeah i only got up to like intermediate level in in, yeah in california so whatever that accounts to but when i started spending more time in the hospital than the track i figured it was time to take a safer (laughs) safer job well i remember back in the day you know if there was a supercross at anaheim on saturday night there might be a golden state at saddleback the next day or or somewhere else in the state i remember doing a crc supercross at i think it was in san diego and uh, my family came to watch me and i think i crashed out or something but it was like i said i was never really at that level gotcha how did you make the move over to, to Honda, or or you said Honda of Troy in there, too? Yeah, um, it's a long story. Um, I don't know if you want all of it, but um, I was at Cowie, and I knew from day one when I started Team Green, I wanted to be a race mechanic, and that was my goal. And I knew I couldn't really go from Team Green to racing because I didn't feel I had the, the tools that I needed to be successful at, at that job. 
So I was able to transition into an opening at our uh, research and development, and that's primarily where I learned a lot of, you know, being a race mechanic. A lot. It's more the technical side of things and bike setup, and um, taught myself how to do suspension from there. Um, and so that was really, I really enjoyed that job. Um, got to do a little jet ski uh, testing as well, and and so. Um, which worked out really well as Mike Preston um, and Jim Jim Cook was running R and D at the time, and um, Mike Preston was the test rider, and so I didn't I didn't enjoy test riding that much. When they needed somebody of more of a entry level guy, they'd use me, but I didn't enjoy wearing gear all day long and then having to pull stuff apart while you're still dressed and it's hot outside. And so I kind of transitioned just to be the mechanic. And Mike would do all the test riding with uh, Mike Fisher also, and it it just worked. And I I learned a lot, and I think it, the three of us got along really well, and we uh, communicated really well. But I knew I wanted to be a race mechanic. And uh, one day I was at my desk, and uh, Larry Ward, by mistake, got my extension. And the phone rang, and I picked it up, and he was asking for Roy Turner. And I said, uh, you got the wrong and I, wrong extension, but I said, is this Larry Ward? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, Larry, I'm like, you know, I hadn't seen him or talked to him since Team Green days. He, uh, Honda offered him a job, uh, uh, and he was trying to get a hold of Roy to see if there was a, another offer possibly from Cowie. And I said, I'm just about done here. You know, I was trying to get in at the time to work for Ron Lachine. There was an opening there. Mike McAndrews was moving on. And um, he said, well, I'll put a name in for uh, with Dave. And at the time, <clears throat> I never even considered Honda. I mean, Honda was at the pinnacle and is still a great race team. And I just thought there was no way I'd have an opportunity to go there. And a couple of days later, I get a, a phone call again from Dave asking if I wanted to meet Roger DeCoster and him at a Coco's restaurant down in Gardena. And pretty much was offered a job on the spot to work for Stanton. And I obviously jumped at it. So That's awesome. Yeah. What was it? I think 89 through 84 with Stanton? Yeah. You guys had a whole bunch of success. I was very, very fortunate um, being paired up with Jeff. And Dave um, always tried to match personalities, rider and mechanic. And I think he did a really good job in that respect. And I just spent some time again with Jeff um, over donations time, and we went to dinner with him and Sarah. And can't say enough about the guy. The guy's, you know, he has a great life and where he's come from. And uh, and so, yeah, I was very, very fortunate to just share in his success, basically. What, what, how many titles did you guys win together? There was uh, three outdoor and three indoor. And they were all paired in the same year. So, yeah. Good times. Yeah. In an era that, you know, it was some pretty colorful characters in there. He seemed like he was really focused on racing and not yes. so much on the everything else. Well, Jeff had a <clears throat> had a great work ethic, right? Never had to worry that he wasn't putting the time in. But I believe a lot of that came from the way he was raised. Also, he was raised on a farm, and it's all about work on the farm, right? And so his training regimen, you know, he rode the bikes and, and uh, rode the bicycles and you know, did a weight program and all that, but he also rode. But on top of that, he did farm work. Like he was baling hay and, you know, they do a hundred bales of hay or something on a truck. And I remember him coming to get me. I'd be at his house uh, working on whatever. And he'd come and grab me and go, hey, the cows are out. We got to go chase and get the cows. And so it was just, I literally, when I stayed at his house, I was so stinking tired by the end of the day. It was from sunup to sundown, you were moving. And then he'd come and grab me like 12, go eat lunch for 20 minutes at some little restaurant, and then come back. So it was, um, the guy was always moving, never stopped. I'm guessing that's something you appreciated in him was oh, the totally, hard word. Totally. I mean, how can you not respect somebody that puts that amount of effort into their job? So, yeah. Well, you probably are feeling like you're putting in the same effort on the, the mechanical side, too. <laughs> yeah, I was, but... Um, I don't know. For me, I was so driven also, and I had so much passion. I felt like what I explained earlier about trying to become a race mechanic, and I felt like I kept hitting the, a roadblock. So when this opportunity showed up, I wasn't about to pass it up. And I was not about to. <clears throat> it became the priority. And I've, you know, I've said in the past, ruined relationships and everything over this 
but I have no regrets and I, I would do it over again just for the opportunity. I've heard some tales of box vans back mm-hmm. in the day. Yep. Um, some of them being pretty trick. Did some of the titanium maybe migrate off the bikes and into the trucks? Oh, yeah. How, like, how did that work? So when I went to Honda it, that year, there was going to be a very large team. And the uh, box vans from the previous year were passed down to like the there was an A, B and a C team. And the A team, which was um, myself, Cliff White and um, uh, Brian Lunnis, we the three of us got brand new box vans. And those things were the state of the art at the time. And I was it was so these things were so nice and so cool. And uh, yeah, there were, you know, I it was for me coming in and then being exposed to all this. I remember one of the first things ever is like um, they're like, yeah, there's the air filters. Right. And I'm like. These things are pre-oiled and they're bagged and you don't. And I go, so do we clean them when you're, no, you just throw them out. And you're like, what? You know, yeah, like, like tear offs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I was, I'm thinking this was pretty cool. Like I, I heard some of the guys like would have tie bolts and cabinets yeah. and, and things like that too. Yeah. Like our fab guy at the time would make us uh, for like a, a T handle holder on the outside, like by your toolbox. That was a, made out of titanium and there was um it was a good time when you know all the stuff that was made because it was all about flash you know at the time and and money wasn't necessarily an object at that time it's not i don't remember hearing budget at that point like i hear it nowadays you know it's times have changed a bit but also it's gotten a lot more expensive than it used to be right honda had some had an interesting mystique back then too it you know like uh what what was the trickiest, coolest thing you ever worked on over there? Well, I don't I don't know if I could say I actually worked on it, but was exposed to many many things. And probably the trickiest, coolest thing is Ricky Johnson raced um, an automatic CR two fifty automatic, and the thing could be programmed. That basically the gear ratios could be automatically programmed from a computer, and that. It was pretty pretty slick. Like Ricky, I mean, a lot of it would. It was only the beginning stages of this, but I think it was more of a learning process. I don't know if they ever thought of this thing would ever turn into reality as far as a production unit, but it had per- potential for sure. More a design exercise, P- possibly, yeah. But it's also cool to go to Motegi now. There's a museum that Honda has there. Uh, three stories. I've been there multiple times, and to look at some of the bikes that I actually got to touch and worked on are actually in the, that museum. So it's pretty cool. That is neat. Yeah, you're always one of the guys with the very serious look. And mm-hmm. it, do you scare some of your guys in here? Do you think? You know, when I'm at the race, I'm very. I am serious, right? And um, and maybe it was because of how hard it was for me to get to this level. I don't know. I mean, we're there to do a job and we're there to win races. And I think I intimidate a lot of people um, with my personality, unfortunately. But I think when the guys get to work with me, they start to realize that I'm not I'm not the same from the outside looking in and that I'm I've had actually one. I actually still work with him today on a suspension side, Rick Gilmore. And the first time we ever met, he was working at Factory Connection and we were in Las Vegas at the time. We're all sitting around having beers and and we got up to go to the restroom or something. We were coming back and he goes, you know, you're actually like a regular guy. And I go, what? And he goes, you like drink beer and have fun. I go. Yeah, I go, I'm just like one of you guys. I just come across a little, you know, too serious and at times and all that. So, But there is a little fun here. I, I saw where Hunter got you pretty good yes. in the, the gecko yes. suit. Yes, Jeff Myshack put him up to that, and the whole team was in on it. And I'm not the first one that got punked that way. But I've told Jeff that he doesn't know me well enough yet and that um, that I don't get even, I get ahead. And so... Jeff, if you're listening to this, I'm going to get you before the year's out, or before the next year is out. Be, be aware. Having done 125 development and, and two-stroke development like you did, and switching to the four-strokes, was it a, a yeah. bit of a culture shock to kind of turn everything on, on its head from before? That's where Factory Connection and American Honda kind of forked off right there, because uh, 
we were doing 125 development in-house. And that's actually when I came back, I, re- I quit Honda, went to Idaho. It's a whole other story. Came back. Honda asked me to come back. And um, I really didn't want to travel anymore. I just wanted to be in-house. And Cliff White showed me um, how to grind cylinders. And I started getting more into the development side of things, which I really enjoyed because I missed working with my hands. From there, we had some success um, with the 125s. We were basically supplying FC with all the engines at that time. So when the four-stroke came out, my learning curve was vertical, right? And we basically said, listen, you guys have to go racing. We have nothing at this time for development. So if you can align yourself with PC, that's probably the best thing to do because it's going to take us some time to get up to speed. And then as we started getting up to speed, um, you know, we had Ernie on the 250 one year. Um, That's when we tried to get the teams back together and go, listen, we're getting our butts kicked by PC at the time. Let's merge and put our heads back together. And um, didn't really come about that well. Um, but when I was team manager in American Honda, that was one of my goals, was to get these teams back together again and share information. And um, I figured then once I transitioned over here, if I couldn't do it, then I, it's not going to happen, you know, because I have a great relationship with Eric, uh, who's now running American Honda. We talk, you know, two, three times a week. And that is our goal, to get these things back together and working and sharing information and, and uh, hopefully bring both teams up. Yeah, I was curious. When, when you made the jump back over here, there was talk of, you know, a little more collaboration. Yes. And, you know, maybe the race team ends up in here also with you guys. You never know. It's a, anything's possible at this time, you know. What this team does extremely well with Jeff and Ziggy is bringing sponsors and bringing uh companies into the program and then also servicing those sponsors really well where that's i think somewhat of a downfall with american honda they're so large of a corporation and there's so many things moving that it's difficult for them to service and take care of those sponsors at the level they need to they just they've never had to in the past right and so i think that's something that we could uh, help them with um and Hopefully, if that means coming together, I don't know what the future holds, but we'll see. It's interesting. You know, back in the day, I, I had some experience with an IndyCar team, and I was kind of joked that, you know, I went to a hospitality event and a race broke out. Yes. You know, I, but it's you kind of have to do that as a service for you have to sponsors. You know, they're looking. They just don't write a check and go, hey, well, you know, good luck next year. And, you know, there's things that they want out of this, and each sponsor is a little bit different and you have to understand what their needs are and you have to um basically cater to that and so um and i think in the past unfortunately american honda hasn't been able to do that very well so hopefully we can help them with that in the future working you know as you were with with team honda how'd you end up in the the team manager spot You know, and then you go by, from being the, the hands-on hardware guy, and then it's probably a little more... Almost by default, do you want to know the truth? I never aspired to be a team manager, never really wanted to be. I really enjoyed the technical aspect of developing engines because we, uh, at one point, we were only doing the 250, and then we turned into doing the 450 as well. I had a couple guys that worked with me, and um, I thought things were going really well. And um, Eric ended up leaving the job, and I think we were only like a month out, four, three, four weeks from the start of the season. And I was asking my supervisor, like, who's going to manage the team? Like, we have things that need to get done, decisions need to be made. And and he said, uh, I don't know. Like, he goes, <laughs> I'm like, well, you have to hire somebody. We can't just keep going like this. So I said, well, who? He goes, well, do you want to? you want the job? And I go, well, I never thought of it, but I said, who are you interviewing for the position? And he said a few names and I said, I'm not really too excited to work for those individuals. So maybe I'd consider it. So they made it interim uh, team manager through Supercross, but they continued to look around, I believe. And I think they thought I did a, a good job at it. And then uh, the vice president asked me if I wanted to continue from there on out. And I, I accepted it. So it was a new challenge in my career it was a completely different dynamic that I was used to, that I was used to, and dealing with, you know, I had, I supervised one or two individuals 
but not an entire team and not, you know, when you're dealing with 15 different personalities and moving parts and then it's it's a bit of a challenge. And now here at FC, it's like 20 some individuals and and we have five pro riders and four amateur riders and um, dealing with parents. And, you know, I, it's it's a whole nother dynamic. But, yeah, I, I really actually enjoyed being a team manager there. It was just something different. But I what I missed there was not being able to do the technical side. And I tried, but it didn't work too well. But here I'm able to do that. I, I don't like to micromanage. I like to put give my input, and then I kind of step back and see what develops. And if things aren't going the way I hope them to, then I'll step in a little bit more. And, um, like, uh, I was kind of excited a couple months ago. I just got my grinding tools out and ground a cylinder head and told Kibby try this, and we'll see what happens. And it was fun to get back there and just do that. Mm-hmm. It, it had to be kind of an interesting time, too, because... You know, early on, like your Stanton days, it, there's a fair amount of domination going on. And then, you know, more recently, it's been a little bit of a struggle. Yes. So what was it like working through that? Working through the struggle or working through, you know, the <laughs> domination part? I mean, I stepped into a perfect situation. I mean, I, you know, back in that day, it was Honda at that time and the relationship that was present with hrc because that was who we were directly dealing with you know if we were down on power or we needed something i mean with the next week we had it in our hands and whether it worked or not you know but we had it and you had options we had options and dave arnold driving that with japan and the communication and there was a lot of mutual respect back and forth um, and then it kind of changed um, starting in probably 92, I believe. Um, it changed from the race side to a production group side. And um, I think it started changing a bit. And I think the mentality changed a little bit, unfortunately. Um, it is more back the other way now. Um, and I think things have improved. But I think it can even improve even more personally. I think some of the moves you guys were doing, getting Kenny on board and yeah. and going through that early in that season watching how he was doing yes. and and everything yes. that was going yes. on yes it, it looked yes. like yes i was yeah the tiger by the tail yeah i was pretty much ready to slip my throat after that um you know there was it wasn't perfect by any stretch but kenny's was just on it right and um i really felt like that was my main focus coming back and kind of running the team is I remember what that team was like, and I remember the dominance we used to have, and I wanted to get back there. And not immediately. I knew it was going to take time. Process. But but the process and getting things back into place. But I felt like with Kenny coming on board, we had the tools to do. And I I don't want to undercut Cole either. Cole um, Mm -hmm. was a a great rider. has so much natural ability. so I figured, you know, with those two guys and we have this new bike and things are going to start turning around and Kenny started to win some races and uh, I was pretty excited. You know, we had a few glitches along the way, but unfortunately, I think it just, yeah, it just took the wind out of everybody's sail a little bit when that happened. It was just, it was terrible. It just amazes me at this point that he's even able to ride. The kid, he is one of the strongest personalities I've ever met ever met never give never die attitude almost makes you a better person you know being around that elevate everyone around exactly exactly working with the 250 squad you're catching guys a lot earlier in their career than the more experienced guys on the 450s how is it different you know do you do you feel like you're working more on developing the talent Uh, is is there guidance that you can i actually enjoy it more i didn't realize this coming here but I enjoy working with younger riders because when the riders are the 450 level, like say a rider of Cole or Kenny's experience level, it's not back in the it's not like back in the day with say working for Jeff. Things have evolved enough to where there's a lot of entourage around these guys, right? And between trainers and sandwich makers and you know all this, and it's kind of hard a little bit and. These guys, quite honestly, it 
it doesn't mean crap to them that I have been around for 30 years, right? Like it doesn't, um, it's, it's all about now pretty much. And so you have to earn their respect and, and show that you bring some value to the program. Honestly, the, the younger guys are more open, I think, to listen to suggestions and more open, um, I'm, I'm trying to teach them. Like, I, I feel like one of the disadvantages that came from FC guys, like, and I'll use Trey and Barsha as an example when they came to the 450 team. I don't think they were doing a great job here teaching these guys how to test and develop and learn how to set up their bike. And I'm really focusing on that. And I think they've come a long way. And, I, and you know, I'll use Trey as an example where when Trey first came to our team, I don't think he was a great test rider. But working with him, he's now evolved into what I feel is a really good test rider. And I still have comments. He's been working with Honda a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I've been, you know, we still discuss things on bike setup and, and everything else to where I tried to explain to him your role now is to understand it's not that you set the bike up for yourself it's to understand the way kenny wants it and the way cole wants it and maybe two separate things but when you try fork a and fork b you can then equate like i like this a little different than say kenny and i think this fork may be more suited for this guy than this guy or whatever so i think he's learning that and i think it intrigues him to try to you know, do that and improve the settings for the, the for those guys. Um, so, yeah, I I really enjoy it being here. It's interesting to me watching companies that used to be the, the corporate line, here's your suspension, here's what you're going to use. There's a lot more experimentation these days, keeping an eye on multiple brands. You know, you have to, first of all. You have to, and you have to understand the bikes that you're racing against the dimensionally what those chassis are and then from my standpoint of watching bikes go around the track and seeing how those bikes are set up compared to yours and if you're getting beat why are these guys beating you and where they're good on a track and where you're good on a track and trying to continually improve that bike setup and listening to your riders and what their needs are and it's a combination of everything right it's just like I said, like um, I tried to explain to Trey, our suspension uh, technician, it was no different than, say, when I was doing engines, right? Like you say, try a camshaft or something. You dyno that, you get you get the results of that, and you have a feeling of that, but yet then when the rider tests it, you get his feeling and or maybe two or three other riders' feelings, and then that combination is what sets you in a direction because not everybody has the same feel and they one rider may lead you down the bat a wrong path so if one rider says he doesn't like it but three says they actually do then you come circle back and you let that guy evaluate it again because if the dyno says it should be better the three riders say it should be better then yeah we're going back and trying it again with the the first rider (laughs) to go back to the the rider side um, with the younger guys, do you try and tame the youthful enthusiasm or do you try and harness it? You know, this is this was the difference that I tried to explain between like Eric Kehoe and myself. Eric was a great pro rider that has a heck of a lot more experience riding than I ever did. But I also came from a technical side and, and then I come from that avenue. So just standing on the side of the track and watching things, I can at, tell the riders, you know, you need to try to do this or try to do that. But I try not to get there and tell them exactly what needs to be done because I feel like I honestly don't have that level of experience where he does. But speaking of taming things down, I'll use Hunter as an example, just coming to the team and learning Supercross or at least U.S. Supercross. I mean, he has ridden some Supercross stuff in the in the in Europe, but not probably the same tracks. And the Honda track's fairly simple as of right now. But I kept trying, and he's, I'm sure sick of hearing me telling him this. But pump the brakes. We have a you know he's probably going to ride East Coast, so you have a period of time to learn your craft, and don't go into this because 
one mistake and you could be sitting on the sidelines for a couple months. So he's taking that to heart, I believe, but I have to keep getting him, I have to keep calming him down and his mechanic is doing the same and I hopefully I want to keep him healthy um, and I've, I've told him there's no expectations the first year of Supercross, you'll, you'll learn and you go into it and do the best you can and then we'll go after the championship the second year, but I want him healthy for outdoors. I want everybody healthy, obviously, right. but, um, yeah, I don't want I'm, – I'm so excited at the talent we have on this team and where this team's going that um, if we keep everybody healthy and off the ground, we're going to have a really strong year. Yeah, I got a chance to go I – was, I was actually looking for you last week and went out to the track and, and uh, got a chance to watch Hunter a little bit. Yeah. He – Looks solid already. Yes. So he has definitely has the skills. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. It's just learning a little bit of technique for the whoops, and and once he gets that down, um, he's now getting comfortable enough after a couple weeks to where he's asking about some suspension settings and how to set the bike up, um, and um, so it's pretty cool. And and I have to give him props too for him to took it upon himself to start videoing himself at the track, and then after. Uh, practicing he'll come into the shop and he'll plug it in and watch it you know up on the monitor and watch himself and what he's doing and and video the other riders so critique yeah Yeah. and trey's i think giving him some good suggestions as well um and that's the benefit of everybody riding together at the track Mm -hmm. the the 250 this year looked like you started from a way better place on the chassis but there was some work to do on the the engine side i mean honestly we we didn't receive our first bike until December. So we're four to three week, three, four weeks out before A1, and we were behind the eight ball. And it was a struggle. Um, and I have to <clears throat> give it to Kibby. He uh, pulled something out at the 11th hour, and luckily we had two of them, and we were able to put them in each of the race bikes. And, um, and that, that helped, but it was still, we were still underpowered where we needed to be and in later in the supercross series we started obviously keep kept improving that i was really happy pretty much where the chassis was near the end um wanted the bikes to turn a little bit better than what we were doing um and those are the things that we kind of see and then we make notes of and try to work on for next year um started the outdoors horribly um, riders were not happy with us, you know, again, starting an outdoor, trying to find a good outdoor setting. And um, Chase pretty much unraveled on me at uh, Milestone or uh, Millville, um, unraveled on me after practice because it's very frustrating. These guys are very, very competitive, and they, they if they don't feel they're on competitive equipment, and I kept telling him, things are coming, we're working on it, we're working on it. And then all of a sudden, it came around at the last three, four rounds, we started getting there. And it showed in our performance. So Yeah, it really did yeah. show. Yeah. So now that we have some months, you know, off-season to work on this, um, I think we found some more stuff. And, and it's a never-ending process, right? You're always looking at that. So um, I'm really excited, I think, where we can be for next year. How much of a roller coaster is it during the season with highs and lows? Oh, it's, you know, it's never ending. It's never ending. <laughs> well, I mean, the had, whole the Jeremy thing. I mean, well, but you had Jeremy at Thunder Valley winning, and then kind of high point the next yeah, week. It, yeah, it yeah, kind of went all wrong. But yeah, um, and then his injury too. It it just you know go back to the Kenny thing, and then you know we come here, and then we're leading the outdoor title which i really felt we had a good it was going to come down to us and plessinger and then to have that dnf at mount morris both uh, chase's bike and uh, jeremy's which were two totally separate deals um and but that's part again part of the process you know you have a failure on some part that you didn't didn't expect and didn't realize and uh, I think they were both, well, in Jeremy's case, I think it had something to do with uh, the way he rode the bike and revving the bike. Um, and Chase's was something totally different. So, And then to go to <clears throat> Muddy Creek and then have that crash happen, um, it just, again, takes the wind out of everyone's sails. And, and the whole atmosphere, the mood of the team kind of goes in the toilet a bit. So 
that's my job as a manager. That's my job is to get everybody back up and firing on all eight cylinders and keep them going and, and focused and going in the right direction. And it's sometimes hard for me to stay motivated and keep an uh, optimistic you know, view on everything. So it's difficult. I was impressed with Jeremy's attitude after High Point. You know, he said, oh, lost 20 points or whatever, yeah. but I plan on winning more, That's right. by more than that at the end of the season. For sure. You know, we had that discussion, and, and uh, props to him for, for feeling that. But he he felt like he was in a really good place. I mean, we, we struggled a little after Sacramento. We talked about what we needed to do chassis-wise. Um, we sent some guys to Colorado to do some testing, and then after that, everything started to fall into place. And um, I truly believe that that was his title, but woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? You know, you never know. Yeah. So these days, how much of the development comes from Japan, from the MXGP side? How much from here? And uh, how different are the needs of the two? Um, we do share information. I mean, our, we sent an engine to Japan for them to look at. They originally sent us what they had, the best of what they had at the beginning. Um, there's always emails going back and forth. We actually um, had a few components that they had us evaluate in December that we kind of discounted, which isn't unusual. There's times when you try something that you go, eh, this really didn't work, and you put it aside, and then by the time you bring up some other stuff in the engine, and then you try this other component again, you go, oh, now it does work. So a couple of these components we gave back to Honda and said, no, thank you. It's, you know, we didn't really see anything in it. But then when Valandrin was actually starting to show some progress in the GPs and getting better starts and, and going somewhere, knowing their settings, you know, I came back and said, hey, can we reevaluate some parts? And sure enough, it now seemed to work on our bike. And that's when things started coming around. Short of Hunter at the Motocross Nations, you didn't really have a dog in the fight there. But watching the U.S. guys, European guys, what are they doing right? You know, we're past a little of the hysteria mm -hmm. post-race there. What are those guys doing right that uh, we're not doing? I think it's uh, a couple things, in my opinion, my humble opinion, because I'm sure everyone has their own opinion. Um, one, we're riding, we're riding Supercross considerably more than outdoors. Um, the way the season's built, one, we have 17 races as opposed to 12. But these guys, as soon as Supercross is over, I'm sorry, outdoors is over, we start Supercross testing. So we're on these bikes, these settings, I should say, seven months of the year, you know, and then you transition, you have two weeks to transition to outdoors. Normally these guys, uh, I'll give you an example. When Chase got back on his bike to ride Supercross again, same exact settings he raced, he goes, man, this is really stiff, right? Which is typical. And it's the same thing when you transition to outdoors, they go, man, this stuff feels really too stiff. And you go, so you make, I'm sorry, too, too soft, soft, too yeah. soft. Right. And then you start making it, you know, stiffer. So it it's, that's, I think, one of the things. I think our tracks, I don't know where we went wrong on these tracks. I'm not a fan of, of you know, making these tracks smoother, you know, and the, and the, can, I just... From being around the sport for so long, I feel like we've lost the character of some of these tracks. I'll use Unadilla as one of them. I remember showing up there for the first time, and there was, you know, six inches of grass growing everywhere. And the same bumps were there for probably 20 years. And they never, all they did was reseed it and come back again. And the track was only raced once a year. And I just think we've got into these every track is almost the same, right? Like I, some tracks used to be hard and dusty and dry and some tracks like Southwick were sand and over there, they don't change that. What it is is what it is. And it starts the weekend and they don't necessarily touch it. Sure. When things get really bad, they do, but 
the, I come from a different side of the fence where if the track was rougher, the riders would go slower. And I feel that's almost safer than the high speed stuff the way it is now. And that's one thing. The other thing is I know the majority of these top guys live in Belgium and they practice at Lommel, which in my opinion is the roughest, gnarliest thing I've ever seen in my career. So when you're riding on a track like that, practicing day in and day out and setting a bike up that works in that condition, that's part of it also. So I don't think our guys, and also to, unfortunately, I don't think they put that much into it anymore. I mean, the motocross of nations isn't what it used to be. I don't believe as far as the, you know, supporting the United States. And, you know, I felt so much pride going over there and being part of that team. And I know Jeff did. And then winning and standing on that podium and knowing that you're representing the United States of America, that was, to me, it was huge. And I'm sure it was for him also. And I don't know if there's that much now pride in the the guys within our paddock. You know, I'm sure there is with some, so I don't want to stereotype them all. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, you know. I'm not getting paid to go, I, and I'm not saying that's the reason. I'm just, I don't know. There's, I think a, each it's each individual rider that has his own reasons behind it. It's funny, I was talking with another pro rider not too long ago, and he said, well, you know, the, the European results, this is kind of 10 years in the making. Exactly. You know, it's, it's not something it's, that happened overnight. Exactly. And those guys, we beat them down for a long time, and they were not happy about it. And they're, they're coming back now with vengeance, and they want to dominate and kick our butts. And they're doing it, right? So... I just like for next year, knowing where the track is, I hope we pick three good sand riders, not, you know, normally I was like, you send the guys that won the classes and all that, if they want to go, if you don't want to go, then don't. And, you know, for all the fans out there, it doesn't help. If the guy is not motivated to go, you guys yelling at him and calling him names is not changing anything or motivating that individual. We need motivator. three yeah. good guys that really want to go, and next year we need three great sand riders. And if that means taking a 250 rider and putting him on a 450, then so be it. And if we really want to be serious about this, then those guys need to pick up after Indiana, the last national, and go move themselves and go ride Lommel for the three weeks pre- preparation prior to that event. And let's really, let's give it a shot, right? We'll find out who's serious about it next year. Exactly. Yeah. What do you love about the sport and what do you want to see changed or what do we need to change? Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> well, we, ha- we still have plenty of... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> No, I mean, God, I, I've always loved the sport, right? I consider it the guys that I have so much respect. These guys are true athletes, right? And, you know, for people that don't understand the sport that well and just think that they're riding a motorcycle, but these guys are true athletes, and the guys that really put their work in um, and treat this as a job, um, I can't give, give it up for them enough. Um, the thing I... I, I'm not happy with is the kind of, I guess it's great that our sport continues to grow, especially in down economy, or it was a down economy. It looks like we're making a return back to, you know, uh, having a great country again, but, um, (laughs) um, but with that comes, like I've had many discussions with Feld, and Feld has done a great job at expanding Supercross. But like any company, like American Honda or Yamaha or Cowie, they're there to be profitable, and they're there to continue to expand the company, bottom line. So where American Honda wants to continue to keep selling dirt bikes and making money and, and expanding um, their line, Feld wants to keep being more profitable, and there's not really a lot of ways I think for them to do that. I could be wrong because I don't know all the ins and outs, but you know they need to put more butts in the seat, or they need to have more races, and they keep pushing having more races. And I'm I'm 
I'm not a fan of that. Um, I know the companies are against having more races and as a whole, with the exception of maybe one. Um, and I just, I'm old school, and I believe that motocross should be here and it should stay. Do we have problems on the motocross side? For sure. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that can be done to fix some of this. But everybody has their own agenda, and there's a lot of people sitting at the table. And, and so sometimes... Uh, it's hard to get a consensus on what needs to get done. Do we need to slow bikes down at all? I, you know, I, your business is all about making them faster and, and all that, but have, have we reached the limit of how fast guys can react? Or I believe Supercross, the tracks necessarily haven't kept up with the bikes. But I have to say, and this was also I discussed with Feld, that and I'm not bagging on dirt works um, tracks and I'm not an expert track builder, but I have worked with different track builders and I think there are things that could be done to that track to make them safer. And sometimes that just falls on deaf ears, right? There were things with Trey trying to come in and help with that. And I believe the couple races that he was involved with last year, I think everybody thought was a positive, but yet that never went anywhere. Um, I think some of the transitions and the way some of that stuff is built is extreme and it needs I think I think it's only better to keep the riders as safe as humanly possible. It's a dangerous sport. Riders are going to get hurt. We all know that. But if we can work in that direction, I think it's only better for the sport. I'd go to the first press conference every year and look at the row of guys up front and think in my head, okay, which one of these or which few of these guys make it to the end yeah you know yeah, it's, it's it's unfortunate um i'm not a fan of trying to do the race for the chase thing or what was proposed i'm not a fan of that at all i think that you know the guy that puts the work in and the best bike wins you know basically um and i don't think uh, most of the uh, oems were in favor of that program either so um i think Feld wants to keep it exciting, obviously, and they want to bring it down to the last round. Um, but they had that, what, two years ago or whatever, and my point to them was, where are all the people? Why didn't we pack this place if this was, you know? So I believe that other things need to be looked at also. But but then again, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm bagging on Feld because, again, I think they've done an outstanding job in bringing the sport to what the level that it's at. So, but I think there needs to be more input. Uh, the companies cannot continue to sustain paying for all these f race teams, right? Yeah. It's not happening. And the bonuses. And, and the bonuses, and they're, they're footing the bill for all of this. Um, and there needs to be a little bit sharing of the wealth, I believe, for this to continue. Maybe with new TV package and... If, if there's more revenue coming in, we'll, we'll, we'll see. see. I guess we'll see down yeah. the road, you know. Hey, break down the, the 19 roster for us with your team guys. Um, well, we haven't totally decided what's going on. It's kind of that great unknown. And I know a lot of 250 teams are afraid to say, and I, I'm not, you know, because I would rather let my guys know what we're doing. Um, but right now the great unknown for us is Jeremy and where he's going to be at and if he is even going to be able to ride Supercross at this point. Uh, um, we should know that maybe more in about a month, um, month and a half. But um, Hunter, obviously, right now we're thinking East just because he needs the time to get up to Bonus speed time, and, get, right. and get comfortable. And Christian, he always rides better on the West. So those are the two for sure right now. And then the other two guys, we're looking at possibly RJ on the West um, because he's never ridden West and putting Chase on the East. But we'll see what happens. We're not, you know, that can change at any given day. <laughs> solid crew, though. Yeah, yeah, solid crew, and um, I'm like I said, I'm pretty excited where these guys are. You know, what the potential that we have for a team, especially outdoors. Outdoors, we're going to be extremely stacked. I think. In the rare time that you get off time, mm -hmm. what do you do for fun? Right, try to ride my bicycle as much as I can. I really rode a lot before becoming team manager at Honda and then I stopped and I'm a creature of habit so like I could ride every day for a week and then I miss one day and then it's like 
you know, that, that turns into two, then three. So I'm really trying to get back into shape. And I've been riding the road bike again, but I also um, purchased a mountain bike from Intense, which is awesome. And don't know a lot about it, but I've been going with um, some of the riders who are taking me up uh, Skyline over here. So I'm trying to get a feel for that. But um, I'm, I don't live far away from the shop, so I ride my mountain bike to work. I go through Chino Hill State Park and, and ride to work some days. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying that part of it where... You know, it used to be an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes to drive to Torrance from my house. Now it's, you know, driving 15 or 20 minutes or riding my mountain bike. So, uh, yeah, that's good. If current day Dan could write a letter with some advice for 20-year-old Dan, what would it be? Wow. If Well, you know, many people have said if you could have the knowledge that you had have now when you were 20, wow, I'd be, you know... I'd be going places. But. Way ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. That's a good question. I'd have to really kind of think about that. Um, I think it was a shock to me when um, my father passed in 92. And I put things, I think it, it happens with a lot of individuals when they have a death in the family. It puts things into perspective. But in my life, um, I was close with my dad. And we were on a second nighter at Michigan and Pontiac, and then I was I was away from home for about two months, and then get that word, and and that was pretty devastating. And then to be able to uh, win that championship that year in Supercross was was pretty pretty wild. So um, I don't know. I I this is only I mean as much this is going to sound really strange, but as much passion and desire in love I have for this sport, um, you can't forget family. And um, this is just dirt bike racing, right? I mean, in the big picture, it is just a job. I don't treat it that way, and I think the majority of people in this sport don't treat it that way. But there are other aspects of your life that you can't forget about. Okay. Okay? You accept that? I'll take that. Okay. Well, I appreciate the time and... and uh... Thanks for helping us out on another podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's it for episode 10 of the Inside Line presented by Thor. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dan. Remember, for over 50 years, Thor MX has been at the forefront of motocross racewear innovation with products that are purpose-built to help riders perform at the highest level in one of the most demanding sports in the world. The 2019 collection featuring the revolutionary Prime Pro racewear is available now. Head to ThorMX.com to learn more. We also have to thank Chaparral Motorsports. For more than 30 years, Chaparral Motorsports has been sharing its love of dirt bikes with like-minded individuals by offering a massive selection of the latest riding gear, new models, parts and accessories, and great pricing on tires. Visit chapmoto.com. That's chapmoto.com. Ready for some more bench racing? Look for the next Inside Line soon. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. And you can also go back and check out previous shows. If you're feeling really generous, leaving us a rating and review always helps. Thanks.